Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. Here with me today is cannabis expert and activist, Dr. Amanda Ryman. She's a drug policy reformer and founder of Personal Plants, a DYI plant medicine initiative. So from seed to self-reliance, this is a way that all of us can grow our own plant medicine in our backyards or on our windowsills in the kitchen. Welcome, Amanda. So happy to talk to you. Hi. Thank you so much for showing up. Really appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we met in Clubhouse, didn't we? We did. Mm -hmm. If you can call that a meeting. We heard each other. We heard each other. Exactly. I I hear you. And I was just reading up about you a bit and I thought, what an amazing woman you seem to be. I mean, no pressure. (laughs) I'll see. I'll see how amazing I am at at one o'clock on a Wednesday. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We'll see how amazing you really are. Okay, gosh, would you like to introduce yourself? I know that you're a a drug policy reformer and a a cannabis expert, a public health researcher, a founder. Tell me a little bit about your past. Let's get up to speed and then we can kind of dive in more. Sure. Sounds good. So all those things are true. Um, (laughs) I came to work in cannabis through social work. So um, I started studying drug policy reform when I was a graduate student in social work, really because I was interested in how people who were drug dependent were treated in society. So I felt that the fact that drugs were criminalized, that people who had what was obviously a health issue were being sent to jail and were being demonized and stigmatized really throughout their entire lives because of the substance that they choose to use when a lot of us, you know, drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes and have our caffeine and have our sugar and no one says anything. So it appeared to me that how we made these decisions about what drugs were acceptable and which drugs weren't acceptable had a lot more to do with who was using those drugs than the safety and dangerousness of those drugs. And as a social worker, of course, what I noticed was that the people that were most often involved in the criminal justice system related to drugs were black and brown people, uh, people from vulnerable communities, and that in many ways, drug laws were created in order to control certain populations. And once I learned about that, Then my activism really took over and I started to think about how I could make a difference in how people who use drugs were treated, how drugs were regulated and how we looked at substance use. So I decided, you know, quite frankly, I'm a woman, as you can hear and probably see, and women aren't really listened to in these worlds, right? They're not listened to in the top policy rooms. And I honestly felt that in order to have the impact I wanted to have on a broad scale, I had to go as far as I possibly could in my profession. I had to get that final degree so that- You needed needed the PhD. I needed the PhD. And, And you know what? I wasn't wrong. (laughs) <laughs> Let's just say that. Really, I was, did you really, I really notice a difference before and after? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I notice a difference in how I am treated before I disclose the fact that I have a PhD. And usually it's surprise 
right? Because, you know, maybe I'm blonde and blonde people aren't supposed to have PhDs. Like, I don't know like where that comes from, but it absolutely has made a difference. And a lot of times I'm in a room with men who are, you know, trying to make these policy decisions and they look at me and they, you know, maybe take me a little bit seriously. And then when someone drops the word doctor, all of a sudden it's like, oh, Maybe she does know what she's talking about when none of them have to have that moniker in order to be taken seriously. So anyway, I decided that I needed to get a PhD if I was really going to have an impact on how this issue was viewed. So I decided to apply to UC Berkeley. Um, I got in, I was living in Chicago at the time. And so I moved to California and that was in 2002. Now I had been a cannabis consumer. It wasn't like it was my first day on the farm. Yeah, I'd love to hear a bit about your history with cannabis and like, is that something that, you know, came down through the family and understanding of cannabis as something that was, you know, not weird or taboo or or how did you kind of get to know the plant? Well, I mean, I I definitely have parents who are progressive and who I later found out were, you know, sporadic consumers during my lifetime, which of course I never really knew back then, but I grew up in a very conservative place. So I grew up in Indiana in the middle of the state. And so there really was not a lot of progressive drug education. It was really just say no. It was really at the height of dare. So my access to information about drugs was pretty much nil. And I mean, this is pre-internet. Right. So your ability to access this information was was difficult. So when I got out of high school and I moved to Austin, Texas, all of a sudden I learned what drugs were. And what I learned was that they are not what I was taught they were. And that was really what made the biggest impression on me, because I grew up, you know, smoking a joint at a party in, you know, with alcohol. And it was just kind of that scene but it was never part of somebody's regular lifestyle. And if it was, it meant that they were unmotivated, that they, yeah, that they were a loser. And so I left home with that mentality. And when I was faced with the reality that that wasn't the truth, that's what really spawned my interest in learning more about why certain drugs became illegal and other drugs didn't. I mean, I saw people's lives completely unravel at the hands of alcohol. And yet that was completely available to them whenever they wanted it. And yet I saw other people who were using illicit substances for medical reasons, whether that was physical, emotional, psychological, and then were constantly going back back into the criminal justice system, coming out with a record, the inability to get a job. And then that just started the whole cycle over again. And I saw that happen for many people until they just died eventually, you know, because they just couldn't get themselves out of that revolving door of drug dependence, poverty, and the criminal justice system. And so when I went to get my PhD and I moved to California, that was really the mindset I had where seeing those folks and what they went through. And then I happened to land in the Bay Area in 2002, where there was this unbelievable cannabis renaissance happening. And you saw dispensaries were popping up. They had recently passed um, Senate Bill 420, which is what allowed for storefront dispensaries in California. So you saw this quite a long time ago now. Yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah, Um, yeah, 20 years ago. So we were seeing this proliferation of storefronts, of dispensaries. And as again, social worker, I was very interested in this phenomena. And that really spawned my work in cannabis. And it was also my own discovery at that time being diagnosed with arthritis as a 20 something, that it was a good medicine. And so, you know, all of these things kind of came together in a way that allowed me to have my own personal journey with cannabis, but at Mm. the same time, be in a position to lead 
the research and the advocacy and the policy reform because I had that background Mm -hmm. as a scientist and a PhD. So it really came together in a way that I think was kismet. And I feel that it, it put me exactly in the place I was supposed to be. You know, it's just beautiful when things make sense. It's not necessarily a given. Uh, so congrats. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I'm curious about your your own understanding of it from a, well, I'm I'm curious about the sort of recreational side and I'm, I'm curious about the medicinal. I mean, for me, uh, marijuana started out, you know, was sort of like, you know, dabbling as a teenager and it was certainly... Um, I mean, we couldn't really get our hands on it in England. You know, we, we would get hash and then, you know, just spend a lot of time laughing and on the floor. And that was great. I mean, that's pretty medicinal, you know, when you're a stressed out student. But, you know, it was it was a sort of random party experience is what I'm trying to say. And now over time, I've I've understood that plant is much more complex and having much more medicinal value. And for me now, it's not something I'm not really looking to to get high in that way, although I don't object to it. But really, I use it for my body. And I'm so, you know, grateful, the sort of the menstrual cramps and the headaches. And, you know, if, if you're if you're sensitive and your body turns to these kinds of things, yeah, I, I haven't found a superior medicine and I've tried so many. So for you, is it is it sort of more weighted in that in the body experience and the mediation of pain in the body, your understanding of it? It, it is for me, but I, I also found very early on in my research that people were using this for both physical and a mental health issues. And then a lot of times these things are related. And so yeah. as somebody who has had chronic pain for the past 20 years, I can tell you that it absolutely impacts your mental health. And one of the beautiful things about cannabis is that it is such a multidimensional plant that folks were telling me that, you know, they used to be on a painkiller and an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety medication and something to help them sleep and an anti-inflammatory. And they're able to replace all of those different drugs with the cannabis plant, using it with different preparations, different cannabinoid profiles at different times of day. And once they have that dialed in, it really Mm -hmm. just releases them from the side effects associated with pharmaceutical drugs. I mean, when I was 23, 24, And my doctor was telling me, okay, you have arthritis in your feet and we're going to start giving you cortisone shots in your toes every week. And we're going to put you on a prescription anti-inflammatory. And I was like, I'm 23. Like, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. I want to find something that's going to be better for me long-term. And that's one of the reasons why cannabis was so perfect. And I really wish that it was looked at as more of a first line defense. So often it's like the last resort. It's like, okay, you've tried everything else, including things that are highly addictive and could kill you. Now let's try cannabis. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it really should be the first line of defense in many cases, because it has such a superior safety profile to a lot of the pharmaceutical drugs that are the first go-tos for doctors. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that, actually. And I think as you were talking, I was thinking about the kind of conversations that you get to overhear if you go into, you know, a cannabis store in, in Los Angeles. And I feel like the, the folks working in these stores have become kind of the default. Well, it's a bit like the British pharmacist, you know, the British pharmacist, you'll go in and you'll say, you know, I've got a migraine and then you'll actually get into it with them and they'll be qualified to talk to you about, you know, the, the, the migraine that you're having and what, what drugs to take. But, but yeah, I mean, it's even, it's just much more, more of a branchy, more weed-like conversation when you go into one of these stores and, you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm thinking about something to 
enhance, you know, my sexual pleasure. But I'd also like to bring down the inflammation in my body. And, you know, I'm a bit anxious and um, God, I'm making this person sound just like me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's so interesting because there are so many potential ways to go. But I also feel like and this is, uh, you know, I'm coming at this obviously not as a as any kind of professional just but someone who's been in in psychology and and mental health and an explorer i feel like we have so much further to go in understanding the uh, the doses the applications i just feel like we need so much more information i still feel it's a little bit like wild westy and it's obviously very sort of subjective but you know what an edible is going to do for one person is not what an edible is going to do for another Well, it's interesting that you say that. And and I totally agree with you. And part of that is just what plant medicine is. So, you know, it is cannabis as a plant, but plants themselves are always going to have this variety, right? And and, and they're, they're alive, they're interacting with your energy, they're interacting with the energy of the environment. And so I think that what we have to do is find a happy medium that allows people to dial in the effect they're looking for but at the same time, honors the fact that it's never going to be this one molecule, one reaction formula that we have through the FDA, where, you know, it's like, I know that if I take an Advil, I'm going to feel the same way every single time. But you know what? That Advil also isn't able to adapt to me. And it's not able to adapt to how I'm feeling that day when the cannabis plants absolutely do. So you see that you see the cannabis, it, it's an adaptogen. It's how the hell does that work? Is there any way you can explain it simply? Sure. So we have, we have endocannabinoid systems. So we have systems in our bodies that produce the exact same chemicals that are found in cannabis. And it regulates pretty much all of the major systems of the body. It's not that different than the nervous system. And so when the can- cannabinoids are, go into our body, I like to call them smart drugs because they don't just attack whatever's in front of them. They actually do an assessment of where dysregulation is occurring in the body because they're basically going to do the job of the chemical that our own body is producing anyway. So if you think about keys and a keyhole, our endocannabinoid system is full of keyholes where cannabinoids, whether they come from us or the plant, fit perfectly in that Mm. keyhole. So it's able to really target where the dysregulation occurs. And so I'll just use myself as an example. Like there are certain situations where my pain is so like intense where I am using a very large amount of THC. Like I I have a high tolerance anyway, but Mm -hmm. after back surgery, I was using, oh, you know, like 100, 200 milligrams of THC several times a day. And I did not feel intoxicated at all. That's so funny. Just to do, give a little relative scale here is for me, if I have 2.5, half of one of those five, I really feel it. Like I really feel it. I can even feel a one. <laughs> That's impressive. You're like the princess and the pea. <laughs> that is my personal myth. It's so funny. Anyway, back to you. I just thought that was hilarious. Okay. So results may vary, right? Right. Well, the, 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 the kind of the theory is that if your body is really having pain in a certain area, that everything that those cannabinoids are doing are going to that area. So yeah. it may not be binding in the brain as intensely um, when you've got localized pain, for example. 
So it really does sense what's happening in your body and it goes towards that. And that's one of the differences between cannabis for a disease like cancer and chemotherapy. So chemotherapy has a job, which is to kill everything with the hope that it kills the cancer before the host. Right. And cannabis only attacks unhealthy cells. So it's not going to go after the healthy cells. And so from that perspective, as a treatment, it has much fewer side effects because it's not acting as a toxin to the rest of the body. It's really only targeting the dysregulation. And this is fairly new science. I mean, we just realized we had an endocannabinoid system in the mid 90s. That's not that long ago to discover such an important system that regulates mood and sleep and sex and appetite and pain. So it's really very early on, as you were alluding Mm -hmm. to before, we have so much more to learn about how the cannabinoids interact with our own body systems and how we might be able to use that knowledge to prevent some of these diseases of dysregulation like MS or cancer. So it's fascinating research and anyone out there who's interested in cannabis research, I tell them like, this is the area you want to go into because it's which, which area? endocannabinoid research. Endocannabinoids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a wonderful mentor who was a, a psychedelics pioneer and she's passed now. And I remember she used to, she got very, very excited about the potential of, of CBDs for developmental uh, disabilities and she used to, she just was like, kiddo, you got to get into this business. And she would go on about it. And I was like, oh, it sounds like drugs. And I've got a therapist license. And I got, you know, I cut to sadly, you know, it was only after she died that like everyone got the message, but, um, or not everyone has gotten the message, but um, obviously we, we're starting to, you know, put, put these things on the map. But what do you understand about the application of cannabis for developmental difficulties? Or, or do you think it can help connect those dots and sort of repair cognitive systems? Oh. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have seen research about cannabis creating neurogenesis in the brain, and this has been primarily focused on Alzheimer's and dementia and kind of those diseases of aging. However, one area where they're seeing amazing research with cannabis and younger folks with autism and oppositional defiant disorder and some of these other kind of behavioral disorders connected to being on the autism spectrum, uh, self-harm, um, those kinds just, of things. Are you talking about just CBDs or CBDs plus THC? Well, so that's the interesting thing because of course, you know, CBD is going to be the one that is going to be more acceptable, right? It's not intoxicating. However, when you talk to the parents, they say it helps to have a little bit of THC in there because it helps with the calming. Well, it seems to unlock whatever that sort of anti-inflammatory, I mean, this is anecdotally as I've sort of studied it, because I I thought I don't want THC in my system. I'm so sensitive to it, blah, blah, blah. But I can take loads of CBDs that have zero THC and not much happens, but I can take, you know, a sort of medium-sized dose of CBDs with a tiny little THC and it's a world of difference. Yeah, so that what you're describing is the entourage effect. So there is definitely this thing that happens with cannabis where uh, having an, an, a whole spectrum or having all of the cannabinoids present is more effective than isolating one single cannabinoid. So they work mm. best in unison for exactly the reasons you're talking about. Um, it helps activate the different benefits of the different cannabinoids when they're all working together. So if you think about it as you know one solo horn player who may sound amazing, But then when you add the entire symphony, it becomes something so much more 
Um, it becomes a cohesive sound. And that's really what the entourage effect does. And so one of the things I definitely advocate for, for wherever possible, if you're living in a place where it's available, is to get something that's a full spectrum product versus an isolate or distillate. So this is tough when you're in a place where THC isn't legal and all you can Mm. get is hemp derived CBD. But if you are in a place where THC is legal, getting something at the dispensary that is a high CBD and has a little bit of THC is going to likely be more effective than getting something in say the health food store that is a complete isolate or distillate, meaning that they're just taking the CBD out and there's yeah. nothing else in there. I, I agree with that, but then, okay. So then we're working with the fact that, you know, you might take 200 MGs of THC. I might take one. Okay. So, you know, what would be a, it's, you know, what would be a good way in? Would it be like a 20 to one ratio, something like that, if someone was wanting to experiment? I always suggest that people start with a higher CBD ratio because yeah. you can always add more THC if you're not getting the effect you want. But I don't want people to take too much THC right off the bat because then they may have a negative effect and we really mm-hmm. want to avoid that. So I do suggest um, tinctures are great for this because a lot of times they are represented in ratios. So yeah. if you look for a start with a 20 to one CBD to THC, now that is going to have a little bit of THC in it, but it's going to be 20 parts CBD to one part THC. If you find that you're not feeling an effect from that, then go down to maybe a 10 to one, which is going to be 10 parts CBD to one part THC, slowly introduce products with a little bit more of a THC CBD equal ratio until you find that sweet spot and then stop. Because the quote unquote, thank you for that, by the way, (laughs) but the the quote unquote, like pain ratio is the one-to-one, right? In the stores, they're like, this is, this is sort of the the standard for dealing with pain is the one-to-one. I mean, THC is important for pain relief. It is an important piece of that. But again, like yourself, some people are very sensitive to THC. So, you know, one-to-one, I would say, is probably a recommendation that a largest amount of the population could tolerate. But there are going to be those folks on either end that where that's too much or it's not enough. And my personal opinion is that it's better to add the THC in than take too much off the bat because our brains are very strong when it comes to memory. And I have spoken to folks who have said, I would love to use cannabis as medicine. I overdosed on a pot brownie 10 years ago. And now any THC at all gives me anxiety. And I don't want people to get into that situation. So that's why my suggestion is always start with less THC than you think you need. And then if you don't get the effect, then add something with a little bit more THC. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's important to talk about the range. I mean, I'm, I'm a little obsessed with this is what I always think about with cannabis. And I always think about the fact that it's a weed. So it, it just goes, weeds just go anywhere, don't they? they? So they can go anywhere and everywhere. And and so I think that, that weed seems to have this incredible range, you know, from something that can be very, very mild and user-friendly and just harmonizes completely with the system and could just smooth things out or could like derail you in such a hardcore way that it's not even like, like you could take ayahuasca and, you know, you could turn into like a lemon in your mind and body. And, but somehow it would make sense because it would relate to that time when, you know, the guy called you the lemon and then, you know, there'd be sort of some, you know, sort of rhyme and reason to the whole crazy journey. And I think that when people really take a lot of weed, I mean, I, you know, I've had those experiences sort of that, that, you know, the weed milkshake in India, you know, and like waking up three days later, you know, 
covered in paint or whatever, but you know, I had some like crazy journeys and, and I've heard that from other people as well. They're just like, Oh, I'll never touch weed again because I had that one time where I had the milkshake or the brownie or whatever. And it can take you to a place where you have a really a meltdown that may not be helpful in any way. Oh, absolutely. So one of the myths out there that drives me nuts is that you can't overdose on cannabis. Mm. You can absolutely overdose on cannabis. The thing is you can't fatally overdose on cannabis. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. So even if you wake up in India three days later, covered in pain, Mm. the reason you cannot overdose on cannabis is because it does not impact the part of the brain that regulates breathing. Mm. So unlike alcohol and opiates, which do impact that part of the brain, and if you take too much, it basically shuts off and then your brain isn't telling you to breathe and then you die. I mean, that's how it works. Cannabis will never shut that off. So no matter how much you take, you will still breathe. You will not die from it. So I think that's important for folks to know because you cannot die from it, but you can absolutely overdose and have a really bad experience. And so, you know, you were talking about the difference between taking too much cannabis and taking ayahuasca. And I think the big issue is intentionality. Like, what is your goal? Like, if I'm going to go take ayahuasca, I'm preparing myself for something, right? And and so that experience, experience is there because I brought it to me and I, I embraced it. If you take too much pot brownie, you're at a party and you think you're just eating one and you eat two, or you think it's much less strong and it's much stronger. And all of a sudden you're at this party, you're way too high and you don't want to be. That is what gives people the anxiety. And so I think that set and setting becomes so important with any drug, but especially cannabis. It's so vulnerable to set and setting. And so when I was teaching at Berkeley, I used to tell my students, when you take an edible, be really aware of your surroundings. Because if you're the kind of person that hates crowds, don't take an edible at a crowded concert because all of that anxiety about crowds will come out. If you're uh, with a group of people you don't really like, or don't feel comfortable around, don't take an edible because it's just going to enhance that discomfort. How about don't take anything if you're around a bunch of people that you don't feel comfortable with? Sometimes people's thing is like, well, if I get high, I'll feel more comfortable. Or like, you know, I know I realized that it wasn't a compassionate response because of course we get stuck with people all the time that we don't feel comfortable with. Right, right, exactly. So I mean, mediate the experience. Right, so that's a rule that goes across everything. But I think that's what's really important with with cannabis because eating it is not the same as smoking it for a lot of reasons. And you don't want to have that bad experience because as I mentioned before, cannabis is such a beneficial medicine that you don't want to get into a situation where it's not available to you because you ate too much at a party at one point. Cannabis is also a medicine that is going to be most useful to us when we're old. I mean, that's when Mm. cannabis is the best because we're very sensitive to other pharmaceutical drugs. We have multiple ailments going on and we're very sensitive to alcohol as we age. So having access to cannabis at old age is extremely important. And if you ruin that by having a reckless relationship with it earlier, you're really doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, I really, I really hear you on that. And I mean, it would be amazing to get cannabis into hospice. It is. Is it? Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was straight onto the morphine generally. No, in California, they actually have quite a few hospice that use cannabis. I visited some of them when I was doing my research and it was really lovely. Some of them had gardens where people could actually grow the cannabis themselves, which was a really therapeutic piece. Oh, good. Well, I've obviously underestimated 
<laughs> that, that that progression. I'm kind of enjoying going through this sort of a myth busting process with you. Can we do a couple more? Yeah. And then I want to hear more about the about the projects. But okay, cannabis and memory. I always blamed my uh, my bad memory on too much weed smoking. What do you think? So short term memory, yes. Long term memory, no. Oh, okay. So cannabis definitely impacts your short term memory. So you know you smoke. And then you're like, what did I come in this room for? I call it a senior moment. I mean, I have those now, like regardless, but you know, it's one of those kind of things, or you're in the middle of a sentence and you lose your train of thought because you're really high. It seems to come with the the thoughts that you're really excited about. I noticed that I'm always like, and the thing I have to really share with you right now is, oh yeah. Yeah. You get lost (laughs) in the moment, you know, you get lost in the excitement, but the good thing is that it does not impact long-term memory. That is great. Yeah. Well, I'm very, very happy. That might have just made my day, actually. Okay, and this this goes into the, the world of sort of parental concerns. I have a, an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old in Los Angeles. They're entering the world of edibles. Gummies are everywhere. They look like candy, but they're really loaded with stuff that can kind of rip your brains apart. So I think this is complicated territory here. I really do. I'm Because I'm, I'm an advocate for weed in general, but I... I'm not an advocate for my kids bombing themselves. Nobody is. But I don't know. Right. But it's just, it feels so tailored for this, you know, the the packaging, it's all packed and sugar. Right. So, So here's the thing about the packaging. Yeah. The cannabis industry, unfortunately, still thinks that all of its consumers are 18 year old boys because when it was illegal, most of their consumers were 18 year old boys. Right. And so right, right. while we have seen, especially in California, some of the packaging mature to, you know, speak to older folks or to speak to environmentally conscious folks, there's mm-hmm. definitely still that kind of cartoonish video game ethos yeah. to cannabis. Yeah. And yeah. that will evolve because the thing is, is that before legalization and even right after legalization, the group of people that felt most comfortable talking about being cannabis consumers were 18 year old boys. Yeah. So the fastest growing segment of consumers are actually women and older people. So as that continues to happen, so you'll start to see that packaging change. But when it comes to okay. kids, the thing is for all drugs, not just cannabis, education and realistic conversations are key. Mm. I mean, I grew up in a all drugs are bad, just say no era. Mm-hmm. And we didn't learn anything that was helpful to us in making decisions about how to keep ourselves safe. So one resource that you may want to check out is called Safety First. Mm-hmm. And it is a drug curriculum that was put out by the Drug Policy Alliance. And it's free to download um, on the website. And it goes through just really realistic modules about drugs for parents and their kids to have these discussions. And really that's going to be the best deterrent to a young person getting involved in anything very seriously. Now, experimentation is normal. You know, it's, it's part of what happens. And so the important thing is going to be to make sure that if they're going to experiment, that they know the truth, like they should know that you cannot fatally overdose from cannabis, but that you can fatally overdose from alcohol. Like Mm. that is a piece of knowledge that a young person should have. And in school, we just tell them alcohol is for adults and don't drink and drive and cannabis is illegal. And that's not helpful. If a a kid's at a party and there's a bunch of different drugs there, how are they going to, in that moment, make a decision that's safest for them? And unfortunately, even though we want that decision to be no thank you to any of it, 
the reality is at some point the answer may be, well, I wanted to be like, read the pack, find out what the ratio is, but it's not going to be like that. They're going to have like a couple of sticky little gummies in the thing that they've stolen from somewhere. So then, you know, you so know then you're talking, right. So then you're talking about, okay, if someone offers you a cannabis edible, this is what you should know. You should know that it's not going to take effect for at least an hour. So don't eat a whole bunch. If you're going to eat any of it, eat a little bite and no more. That it's not the same as smoking it. So even if you've tried that before and it didn't really do much to you, this could be a whole other scenario. And before you do any substance, make sure you have a buddy and a ride home. And I mean, these are safety, right? Because I think when I talk to parents, yes, they absolutely do not want their kids using drugs. No parent does, but they also want them to come home at the end of the night more so than they don't want them to use drugs. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, well, good. That's I'm going to check out safety first. That sounds like a really good resource. Thank you for that. Okay, and then um, I'm really excited to hear about this this personal plants program that you've got going on. Tell me about this program. Sure. So, um, you know, as I said, in addition to being a researcher and doing all of that, I'm also a consumer and I've been using cannabis for 20 years for for pain and other things, but I've been growing it myself. So I do use dispensaries. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not Wonder Woman. Sometimes I need to supplement, you know, what I make myself, but I do grow and make most of my edibles myself. And I started doing this in Chicago in the 90s when it was definitely not legal. And I loved the experience of it. I loved the experience of nurturing the plant, of growing my own medicine. And I found that the cannabis I grew, even if it wasn't like the best stock of seed always just was so much better than whatever I bought in the store. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how when you're growing a plant, you're actually exchanging energy with that plant. So it's growing with you. It's growing in response to you. And that definitely makes a difference in how the plant expresses itself. So I've always been in love with the idea of growing my own cannabis. And at the same time, I found that the home grow space is very fragmented and it's not very welcoming for women. It's again, this 18 year old boy mentality that everybody wants to grow like a hundred plants in their parents' basement. And we're going to show you how it's always the basement. It's always the basement and it's always somebody with a mask on. And, you know, and that's not who is growing cannabis now, you know, it's moms and it's grandmas and it's people that want to nurture their own health and, and have that control over their health. So I decided to start personal plants really as kind of a food network for medicinal plants, with the idea being that we want to create a space to showcase content, to bring people the curated tools that they need, um, to give them an opportunity to interact with each other all around this concept of growing our own medicine and really make it feel accessible. And like, you can be so new at this. Like you could be somebody with a black thumb who's never been successful growing a plant. Like we want you to interact with us. So we have these kits, these very easy to use kits where, you know, you're, you're ordering it. We're sending you everything you need in the right amount so you can make it at home. We've got a six month long series going on called personal grow. So we have a website for that, which is personalgrow.co. And we're going to be talking to some amazing experts from May through the end of October on all the different topics related to growing your own. It's completely free. And that way we're trying to get people growing and get people excited about growing your own. 
So that's what personal plants is. You know, I came up with the name because at least in California, we refer to the cannabis that's not in the commercial market as your personal. And also Mm -hmm. because I think growing your own medicine is very personal, you know, in terms of what you choose to grow, how you ingest it. uh, It really is about becoming one with that plant. So this is just to kind of clarify that the point of growing your own is to connect more deeply with what you're putting into your body and to cultivate the particular thing that you actually want to put into your body. So putting your intentions into the plant then uh, encourages or allows the plant to adapt to what it is that you need. Yeah. So, so there's more sort of reciprocity in the arrangement. Is that right? Absolutely. And you also can grow things. You know, the dispensary market these days is so about high THC. Everything is just Mm. so high in THC. And so when you grow your own, you're actually able to grow things that are more liking to what your needs are and not the needs of the 18 year old boy consumer that the market is pandering to. So could I, okay. So I would love to grow a mostly, could I grow something that's mostly CBD? Could I get my, could I do like a 30 to one ratio, like the tiniest bit of THC or does it not work like that? Well, so what you would want to do most likely is to get a clone. So clones are cuttings of a mature female plant. So with a clone, you know that it's going to be female, which is good because that's the only one that produces the buds, but also because you have access to different varietals. So what you'd want to do is find a high CBD clone And then if you have a clone that's high CBD, the plant that grows out of it is also going to be high CBD. In terms of determining the actual ratio, that becomes a little bit more difficult for a few reasons. One is that the way the plant expresses itself is going to depend on its environment. So Mm -hmm. even though the clone may test at a certain level, the mature plant may test differently. And also, at least in the state of California, it's very difficult for a lab to test for personal cultivation because the batch is so small. You know, they're used Mm. to testing these large batches for commercial purposes and with, and then also transporting it to the lab. There's all kinds of rules about that. So I actually have a friend in Canada who's developing a home CBD and THC test so that you can test your own plants and edibles um, at home. That's a great idea. So when yeah. that comes on the market, I think it'll be a lot easier for folks to see. But if you start with a clone that's a higher CBD varietal, you'll get a higher CBD plant from it. Okay, that makes sense. And then maybe I just talk to it very nicely and say, please get me high, but not too high. Just high enough. Play it very <laughs> mellow music. You know, like nothing too crazy. <laughs> Amazing. And now I don't know... Uh, if I got it right, that you're the right person to talk to about this, but I think it'd be wonderful to grow mushrooms as well. Are you involved in mushroom growing? I am so involved in mushroom growing. Ooh, so tell me we more. have an oyster mushroom grow kit on uh, on personal plants. So you can grow that now. Those, those are non-psychoactive, but okay. they're an amazing uh, fungi and mushrooms, like also an adaptogen. Um, mm. So we have a lot of information on our site about different types of mushrooms, how you use them. We've got some great mushroom recipes. So we have like an immunity broth and we have a risotto that I made that's delicious. And we are going to be introducing some psilocybin related content. I am very much in favor of psychedelics for mental health. We could talk about that in like a whole other show, but I have been microdosing for anxiety for uh, quite a while now. And it's been a life changer. Do you microdose just just the psilocybin or do you do it in combination with other? I do it in combination. So I'm doing um, with lion's mane and reishi. Uh, I've been doing it with lion's mane, just psilocybin and lion's mane. What does the reishi add? 
Um, it's also another adaptogen. Um, it's good for your nervous system. It's a good anti-inflammatory. Mm. Yeah, it's a good stack. The three of them beautiful, together. Beautiful. So yeah, I don't really understand. I mean, I just hear that they have such wonderful um, health-giving properties, all these mushrooms. I'm not just talking about the, the psilocybin mushrooms. Oh, absolutely. They yeah. do. They do. So yes, we um, have, we're going to be introducing another kit soon that is a adaptogenic honey kit. So it's powdered lion's mane and powdered reishi and honey. And then you kind of mix it together and make yourself a little like superfood honey that you can oh, use in wonderful. tea, on toast. Um, so yes, I think that mushrooms and cannabis are are great together. Okay, yeah, tell me about the, how do they synergize? Well, again, they're both adaptogens. So, uh-huh. but, they, but they both kind of take on different roles within the body. Um, we don't have mm-hmm. an endofungoid, fungi system. So it's yeah. a little bit different than cannabis, which is reacting to a system that already exists with our, within our body. But fungi can also recognize dysregulation, inflammation, and other points in the body that are out of sorts and target those areas. So they both kind of work like smart, like I said, smart drugs. So they kind mm-hmm. of go in and they're able to detect where they're needed and they just go to those areas. And so that mm-hmm. is something that's mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. than a pharmaceutical, which is really designed to kind of blanket the system in the hopes that it's going to impact the disease. Yeah, no, I totally get that. No, this is an interesting perspective. I mean, I think about how adaptive uh, psilocybin is in terms of the mind. I definitely am very aware of how incredibly versatile it is in terms of working with your back to intention, but working with your intention. I mean, I think, you know, taking magic mushrooms, psilocybin in a kind of distracting party environment you know, they'll go everywhere or anywhere, which can be funny, probably, you know, getting back to, be, you know, being 18 or whatever. But like now that's not super interesting to me, but I, I like to meditate with them. I like to say, I really want to explore this area of my life. What am I not looking at? What would be, you know, a creative way forwards? But I definitely, I still think about mushrooms in terms of the mind and the mental journey. But I think what I'm hearing from you is this is a, a sort of more subtle world of physical application as well. I mean, it's all connected. But. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I use psilocybin, I absolutely feel a body effect mm. and it feels a very calming and sedative effect. And because I have arthritis and I have degenerative disc disease and scoliosis, like that's where all my pain is. Like it, it gets rid of that feeling, that awareness of those parts mm. of my body. Like in a usual time, if I'm just sitting here, I'm not in pain, but I'm aware of where the dysregulation and, and things are happening. Microdosing doesn't do that for me. Microdosing is really yeah. a mental health thing for me, but larger doses, when I do that larger dose, it's absolutely helping me disassociate from the stress inside my mm. body. Yeah, no, sure. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so, so is that where you're focusing most is the personal plants, making sort of democratizing this process? And it sounds like particularly getting, getting women on the map in terms of being growers. Is that right? Right. And, and just the people who are new to plant medicine and really don't know where to start and maybe have heard about it, or maybe they're in a state like Virginia or New Mexico, where they just recently got the privilege to grow their own. Mm-hmm. And they may not have a ready-made cannabis community there. They may yeah. feel embarrassed about asking friends because they don't know who's you know supportive and who isn't. And also people who are newer to cannabis we can't expect them to just bring on the identity of cannabis consumer like it's not a thing because there's been a lot of stigma 
especially for women and especially, especially for mothers to identify as cannabis consumers. So personal plants is trying to meet people where they're at and say, look, you may live in a legal state, but you're not ready to go to a dispensary. You know, you don't want people to see you walking in there. You don't want to assume the identity of someone who buys cannabis, but you're willing to grow a plant and see how that goes. And so it can be kind of a way for people to interact with the plant that protects their, the, their anxiousness about being really out with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to address that anxiousness and with compassion. And and I'm so glad you, you spoke about mothers in general, because, gosh, I mean, it takes me back to this sort of 50s image of, of women as supposed to be, you know, putting on the like not not really having any kind of outlet or recognition of their their pain or their struggle and, and really sort of existing in uh, isolation in the sort of the, the, the new American family kind of structure. So, yeah, I think that, that this feels like it's a way back into connection and also kind of honesty, which is, yeah, we all need a bit of help. And, you know, people are going to dose themselves. It might be, you know, a Xanax secretly, privately on the side or, you know, a Valium or a Martini or, you know, or it could be weeds with friends or it could be weed in your garden. Um, I mean, I don't really have like a big, thing about what's better or worse but I what I do look at is sort of what is it that we feel that we need to hide how is it that we we keep ourselves separate through through shame and I think it sounds like what you're doing is sort of some de-shaming and empowering yeah and the empowerment piece is big and it's something that I saw when I was studying the early dispensaries in the San Francisco Bay Area a lot of them had gardens where patients could go out and tend to the garden And there was something about being able to be hands-on with that medicine and feeling like you had a hand in the creation of it that gave power to people that were traditionally disempowered. A lot of the early dispensaries in a way were like adult daycare centers. They had community rooms, people could consume on site. And a lot of the people that were hanging out there at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday were people that didn't have anywhere else to go. Mm. And so these these places really filled an important role in helping people feel better about themselves and feel like they had control over their health care when they were likely in a situation where they were just being talked down to about their health care outside of the dispensary. And so I think it does provide a sense of empowerment and being able to have some control over your health which I think now, especially coming out of COVID and what people have experienced, there's really been this feeling of not having control over whether you stay healthy or not. Mm. And so being able to get hands-on with your own medicine and grow your own medicine and prepare your own medicine is a way to feel like your health belongs to you and that your health is happening at your own hand, which is a very powerful experience. Your health is accessible, right? There's no gatekeeper. Yeah, there's no one that has to write you that prescription. There's no one you have to beg to write you that prescription. Right, right. Or pay. I mean, yeah, it's... Well, and that's the other piece of it, of course, is the economics. Growing your own cannabis, if you're growing it outside especially, it's pennies per plant compared to what you would spend in a dispensary. And if you're somebody right. that uses a lot of cannabis because you're using it medicinally, it's definitely a better deal for, to grow yeah. it yourself. Well, it seems like the prices are rising quickly. I when the dispensaries first appeared in California, I remember thinking, comparing the prices to alcohol and thinking, this is a really 
you know, really good deal compared to alcohol. Now I'm prejudiced because I actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm less of a fan of alcohol than I am of, of the plants, but, um, you know, that's just me, but, but I was thinking, yeah, this is, this is really, you know, makes more sense and it makes more sense financially. And, and now I, I notice it's definitely, the prices are definitely getting jacked up. I mean, of course they are. Well, it's the taxes. I mean, prior yeah. to legalization, you maybe had a local tax that was put on medical cannabis, but that was it. Mm. Now there's local tax, there's the state excise tax and the sales tax. And so all of that really pushes the price up. And so, yeah, I mean, the reality is if we want people to use the regulated market, we need to make the prices acceptable and not pile on so many taxes. But we also live in California and taxes are like our state motto. So I'm not surprised. I mean, you go to Oklahoma and they look at their medical program and they have like no tax. <laughs> ah, okay. Another good reason to go to Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, what you're offering is a, a pretty inexpensive way. Like how much does it cost to, to grow your own plants? Well, I mean, honestly, if you have seeds, so if someone gives you seeds, I mean, clones are going to run you about $20 a clone. If you have seeds, if someone gifts you some seeds, and then it's really just the cost of soil. Uh, if you can't mm-hmm. plant in your own ground, you know, like where I live, we have very hard clay soil. So we have to plant in other types of soil. And then the, the container. So you're either planting in the ground or you're buying a pot and then the water. And you can do it inside. Let's say you have an apartment. You can do it inside your apartment, but you would need to put lights on. So it depends. If you have a nice sunny window, that's like a southeast you know, facing window that's going to get like a lot of sun in the summer because cannabis is an annual plant. So naturally it only blooms once a year and then it dies. So it's time is summer when the days are longest. So if it's in a window, really sunny, warm window, you can completely grow cannabis that way. If you don't have a lot of sun, then you would need to get some kind of artificial light. But I will say that there's a lot of these really amazing, like small self-contained grow systems on the market mm. where it's basically like a set it and forget it. You put your clone in there, you close the door, it's all on your phone, it feeds it, it waters it. And then you open the closet like three months later and there's weed in it. That just sounds so high tech. It's just your little weed closet, intelligent weed closet. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So cool. Uh, are you still a social worker or are you putting... Are you full-time in this now? I'll always be a social worker. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. having an MSW, um, I was never an LCSW, so I was never a clinical social worker. But, you know, social work is a profession. So, you know, once you have that degree, that's what you are. So, um, you know, I'll always be a social worker. I really believe in the profession. I believe in the tenets of the profession. I was a psychology undergrad. And I was decided to go into social work because social justice is built in to the philosophy of the profession. And that really appealed to me. You know, it's interesting as I sort of continue my journey as a a therapist, I find myself actually mm, probably more attracted to the people with more of a social work background because they feel more connected to, what can I say, real life. Um, You're right. it's, It's therapy right now is problematic. I mean, mental health is really problematic, but I've been asking a lot of questions about the role of the therapist and are we enabling and is there a way, you know, what's the best way to do it? And should we all be just getting up out of our chairs and just bravely facing these new realities? And, you know, I mean, I don't know, I don't, I don't have the answers, but I just, I guess I'm struggling with the sort of rarefied bubbly nature of the thing. 
if that makes any sense. No, that makes total sense. I mean, that's why I couldn't be a therapist. I tried. Um, and it was the same thing you're talking about. I just kind of wanted to leap out of my chair and say, <laughs> this issue is because you're poor. <laughs> There's something yes, wrong with you yes, like, it's it's because you're not getting yeah. the same opportunity. And even yeah. though we can sit here and I can be a compassionate listener to you for an hour, when you leave this office, you're going back to poverty and you're, you're not going to have food that you need and you're not going to feel safe. And so how is talking to me for an hour going to change the impact of that poverty? And so I was thinking, well, we need to change the poverty. And that's when I started realizing that a lot of this poverty and a lot of this vulnerability was tied to the drug war. Um, and people having gone to jail for drugs, not being able to get jobs, having family members in jail for drugs who were the breadwinners of the family, not being able to get the treatment they need for severe drug dependence. All of those things were contributing to the atmosphere that was impacting mental health. And so I wanted to then work on the system because I felt like that was going to help me be more successful than working on an individual by individual basis. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can't really get a map of your results yet, but I can tell you that I have a very good feeling about your work. <laughs> the psychic in me is excited. Okay. So I'm going to ask you two questions to, to wrap up. Yeah. One is about your, um, your biggest challenge right now with your work. And we're going to end on, you know, highest hopes. Well, I think when I say highest hopes, I don't mean when you're most baked. <laughs> My highest hopes. Well, what, what do I hope when I'm highest? Is that what you're asking me? <laughs> okay. So the big challenge, to be honest, um, it's fundraising. It yeah. is tough. It is tough as a woman to raise money. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's partially because again, this assumption about women and how, you know, cutthroat they are, but it's also because we're just socialized to not be these aggressive beings. not be grabbers. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I know that the men are out there saying, fund me. I've got the best business. I am the best person. I'm going to, I'm the most talented. And that's just not my way. Yeah. You know? Like we've been, I've, you know, I've got 12 degrees and I'm not sure I exactly know the answer to this, but I'd like to. I, yeah. It's, it's, so yeah. it's tough. Yeah. So that, that's a yeah. tough thing. And especially during COVID not being able to go and meet with people in person and having to do all of it online or on the phone, um, has been a struggle. So, you know, yeah. just honesty like that, I think is probably the biggest challenge. My high hopes uh, are that despite that challenge, that the value of what I am trying to present to the world will be uh, noted and appreciated. And that's really what this is about. Like I'm creating personal plans for pe the people. I'm not creating it for me. You know, I have a full-time job somewhere else. I'm doing this because I think that it will be beneficial to society for people to have an easier access to these tools and this information. So my hope is that it will be realized for that value value and the focus won't be so much on, well, how much are you selling and what is your income? And, you know, I think what's more important is are people feeling more comfortable about growing their own? And if they are, then we are successful. And then I would say my hope when I'm highest is probably that we have a very mild fire season. Oh, okay. That's, <laughs> a very, that's a very sensible one. Okay. I'm going to push you one more time because I want to I want to hear the the vision of, okay, personal plants has, I don't want to say spread like wildfire because we don't want to get back <laughs> to that flower image, selling like hotcakes. It's happening. It's happening. People are growing their own everywhere. Tell me, how is this affecting the world? Like what, how is it changing the bigger picture? Well, I think this has already happened. Well, what I think is it, it's going to be a gateway to people 
being more self-sufficient around other things. So I know that for myself, I grew only cannabis for 15 years before I grew any other kind of plant. And so I'm hoping that this is going to boost people's confidence to say, okay, I was successful at doing this. What else can I grow? What else is something that I'm now relying on a system for that I can do myself? Is it making my own clothes so that I were not using all of these resources from, you know, little children in China making, you know, clothing for us? Can I have solar on my home so I'm not using as much electricity? Like, I think there's a self-sufficiency piece to it, which is why our tagline is from seed to self-reliance is because I think once people feel like they can be self-reliant in one area, they're curious to know what other areas they can be self-reliant in. And as a society, we are getting so overboard with our consumption of everything that I think if people could just take a step back and think about, do I really need to go buy this from Amazon or can I just do this myself? Like, that's what I want people to think. And I think right now it's like, do I need to buy this from Amazon or can I get this from a local store? Which I also think is a great question to ask, but I would take it even further and say, do I even need a store? Like, is this something that I can create without using any additional resources than what I already have? And living up here in Mendocino County, I mean, that's a big part of the ethos. There's a lot of folks who moved up here uh, during the 1960s from San Francisco and the 70s as part of the back to the land movement. And their idea was living completely self-sufficiently um, where, you know, they're producing their own energy. They're producing their own. They're collecting their own water. They're producing their own food. You know, I don't think we all have to go to that extreme, but I would love for people to think that this was something that was available to them. Wow. I'd like a tour of that. Can you make a little movie at least? So come on over. All your groovy neighbors. I want to come visit for sure. Come visit. Yeah. You can have the Mendocino experience. Oh, I would absolutely love that. It sounds super fun. Hey, thank you so much, Amanda. I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, it was my and pleasure. What you're doing. Well, thank yeah. you so much for having me. All right. Take care, dear. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, bring on this green dream activism. The dream of a world in which plants and people take excellent care of each other. Plants have been looking after us for a long, long time. Let's look after them back and let's create this dream together. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being one of the most excellent pioneers in this revolution. Until the next one.